You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And now in your copy of God's Word, turn again to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, if you're not there already. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, it is our desire to hear you speak to us through your Word. It is in your Word that you have given us an accurate and clear revelation of yourself. Never to be changed and never to be altered, you have preserved it for us. You have blessed us by inspiring inspired authors to write this Word. And we are grateful for the product that we hold in our hands, that it is the Word of God, trustworthy and true. And we pray that you would speak to us now through this. May we never be led astray by our own thoughts and intentions and the wickedness and evils of our own heart. But may, may we constantly uh, be sub- subject and submissive to your will and your Word in all things. Guard us and guard our hearts and our minds now, we pray, in your word and through your word, and sanctify us by the truth. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There was a sense in which before we were believers, we were subject to slavery, and that slavery was the fear of death. But now, those who are in Christ have been redeemed and um, pulled out of the sphere of death. And so for us, death does not have the same slavery uh, attached with it in that we are not, we're, we're no longer uh, slaves to living under the fear, that, that cloud of death and what might happen as a result of death. That doesn't mean that as Christians, we are giddy about death. It's not like when we get saved, all of a sudden we look forward to it and we can't wait for it and we're excited about dying and what that's going to look like and, and we don't approach it like we would approach Christmas morning and opening gifts or anything like that. So we're not giddy about death, but it does mean that we're not scared of it. For, for us who are in Christ, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we're not terrified of the prospect of dying. It doesn't, uh, there is a sense in which we still want to be alive. We still enjoy life in this world. And we still have a survival instinct that we avoid death if possible. And, and we're not looking forward to uh, it and what it might hold in terms of its, if its pain and its suffering and its agony. But for us, the mystery is gone as to what death means for the believer. The French humanist Voltaire once said, I hate life and yet I am afraid to die. I hate life and yet I am afraid to die. Now, there is nothing Christian about that statement because for us, we are the exact opposite of that in every way. We love life. And we love life because it is fellowship with God's people. It is the worship and service to God. It is the opportunity to enjoy God's good gift of creation and the people that he has put into our lives and to serve him and to earn rewards and to be of use to God in some way. So we love life because for us it is the the living out of the advancement of God's kingdom in and through the life that he has given to us and the vocation or the calling or the ministry that he has given to us. So we enjoy life and we're not at all afraid to die. For us, that, that fear is not there. And so we enjoy life and we don't look, we don't dread death. Now, death, death holds a fear over us and it did when we were unbelievers for three different reasons. First, because death was 
uh, it is universal. Death is universal. All of us are subject to death in some way at some time. For some of us, it comes later in life. When we are older, after we have lived a long and prosperous and abundant uh, life and enjoyed God's blessings to the fullest measure possible. For others, death comes early in life and it snatches away a child and uh, or a young person, which seems to us to be very untimely, but no death is untimely in God's plan and perspective. But death is universal, and whether you're young or whether you're old, it strikes all of us. Uh, second, death is uncertain. Though we know that death is, and it's going to happen, we don't know when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen or if it's going to be accompanied with tremendous suffering or if we will just drift off in our sleep some night peacefully while we lie in bed and, and wake up in glory looking at the face of Christ. So it's very uncertain. And a third thing is that death is cruel. Death robs us of everything. It can rob us of loved ones who don't know Christ and who will die without Christ uh, in this world. It robs us, seemingly, of all the profit and advantage that we work so hard for. Death kind of looms over top of all of us in, in this life. And because it is universal and because it is uncertain and because it is unkind, that is the reason why, as an unbeliever, I was terrified to die. Because as an unbeliever, I thought, well, there, there either is a God or there isn't a God. If there isn't a God, then... There's no point to anything. We're all just worm food and we're going to be thrown into the ground and we're going to dissolve into the elements and nothing really matters after all. So I can live my life in, in this life and then when I die, it's, it's going to be one cosmic, eternal unconsciousness where nothing really matters. But if there is a God, and I was terrified that that was indeed the case, if there is a God, then certainly there must be some standard and some reward or punishment for life on this earth and how it is lived. And so I was... I wanted to believe that there wasn't a God, but I had this haunting thought that there might be a God, and if there is a God, then heaven and hell might be real. And I had absolutely no certainty that when I left this life as to where I would land in eternity and spend all of eternity there. What would the afterlife look look like? And I was haunted by this realization that if there was a heaven and a hell, I didn't think I had done nearly enough to go to heaven. And I certainly believed that I had done adequately enough to secure a ticket to hell. I was certain of that. And so because death is universal and death is uncertain and death is unkind to us, we were terrified. But for the Christian, that is not the case. For us to depart and be with Christ is far better. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. We step out of this world in, in, and in one completely conscious moment, we step into, pass through the veil, into glory. So I want you to keep that perspective in mind as we analyze Solomon's mindset in this passage. Because this is another one of those passages where like in chapter one, you just, you, if you don't, if you don't analyze it from Solomon's perspective, you will get immensely depressed. And it is not my desire to depress you. It is my desire to walk you through what Solomon is saying here so that we can appreciate the perspective from which Solomon is writing. All right. So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter two, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17 today. Uh, here's something real quick of, of a review. We are still all the way till we get to the end of chapter two. We are still in a section where Solomon is answering this question. What advantage does man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? That's the question that's raised sort of at the head of this pass, of this longer passage in chapter 1, verse 3. And Solomon in chapter 1 looked to humanity and history and said there's, there's no advantage. Uh, he looked to wisdom and found that wisdom offered him no solutions as to the monotony of life. Then in chapter 2, he pursued pleasure. And now in chapter 2, verses 12 through the end of this chapter, Solomon turns to examine once again wisdom and his works. But now his perspective is somewhat different because now he is, he is a man who is, who is constantly living under the, the cloud, the gray cloud of death. So now at the end of chapter 2, Solomon turns again to look at his works and at the subject of wisdom. 
But this time we see that he analyzes works and wisdom from the vantage point of this cloud of death that hangs over top of us. And it can be quite depressing. It is almost as if Solomon, this is not the first time Solomon mentions death in the book of Ecclesiastes. It comes up over and over again. He talks about how our days are few and we have short years to live on the face of this earth and, and the days of our life are, are numbered, etc. All the way through the book of Ecclesiastes because it is as if Solomon is analyzing all of these different things. But then every once in a while in talking about a subject, he kind of glances up at that cloud of death that hangs over his head. And then he's right back talking about that subject again, but this time from the perspective of the reality of death. So that is what we get in verses 12 to 17. It is Solomon looking at wisdom from the vantage point of life lived under the sun, but wisdom as it exists and death is over top of it. So in verses 12 to 17, we see that death threatens to rob us of all the wisdom that we accumulate. And then in verses 18 to the end of the chapter, death robs us of the fruit of our labor. It's quite discouraging, isn't it? Death robs us of all the wisdom we accumulate, and then death robs us of the fruit of our labor. That's why I said at the beginning, as a Christian, we don't have that perspective on death. And hopefully, at the end of the chapter, I'll try and, I'm going to depress you in the next little bit, and then I'm going to try and cheer you up again before we leave here, just so that you can eat your lunch in happiness. So, in verses 12 to 17, let's read it together. So, I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly, for what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now, in those verses there, we see that wisdom has a benefit for living in this life. Wisdom has a benefit for living in this life. But then what Solomon gives with one hand, he quickly takes away with the other. The middle of verse 14, and yet I know that one fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there's no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun, was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. So in the first half of that, wisdom has a benefit for living in this life. But the second half of that passage, wisdom has deficiencies for facing death. Solomon is brutally honest about what about the vanities of wisdom and, and where wisdom lacks and what wisdom was not intended to do. And this frustrates Solomon because he can never come to grips with living life in this world under this cloud of death which hangs over his head. It's like, and, and this is again a reason why we all believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. He is an old man. He is at the end of his days. And here are his reflections. So let's look at wisdom as a benefit for living in this life. Verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. Now that might sound a little bit familiar, and it should if you were here for chapter 1, because in chapter 1, verse 17, Solomon analyzed wisdom and madness and folly. Look up at verse 17. Uh, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. All three of those words are mentioned. And interestingly enough, they are all mentioned in the same order again. In chapter 1, his focus is, is really on using wisdom to try and answer the perplexities of life and the questions that are raised in life as he looks at the monotonous cycles of life and all that is going on. He raises certain questions about things being vain, and then he turns to wisdom and finds that wisdom is inadequate to answer those questions. And then in chapter 2, now his emphasis is somewhat different. Solomon is concerned about the person who would come after him, his successor, which is why he says in the middle of verse 12, what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? Solomon is looking at his successor, likely his son, who is going to take the throne after him. In chapter 1, Solomon examines wisdom, but he is looking backwards. He's looking at the generations who have come and the generations who have gone. One comes after another. 
the, the wind continues to swirl on its circular courses. The rain falls. Remember all of that? The monotonous cycles of life. And looking backwards at history and what has come before him, Solomon said nothing has changed, nothing is new, and nothing is remembered. And wisdom doesn't solve any of that perplexity. Wisdom can't straighten out what has been crooked. Wisdom can't count what is lacking. In fact, I find when I look at history and try and apply wisdom to it, that the more wisdom I have, the more grief there is, the more knowledge I have, the more pain there is. And so wisdom was inadequate to answer those questions that he raised in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he's looking forward. What about the man who will come after the king? My son, my successor. What will become of him? What can he do except what has already been done? Now, the man who comes after Solomon, and we'll look next week at what Solomon's sons were like, The man who comes after Solomon, who is his successor to the throne, he may pursue the same path that Solomon did. He may use all of Solomon's women and all of Solomon's wealth and all of Solomon's works and all of Solomon's wine to indulge indulge himself and to pursue pleasure. And he can do everything that Solomon did, but he's not going to come up with any answers that Solomon uh, didn't find. And so what will my successor do, my son do, except what I've already done? Right? He's going to come along and he's going to pursue the same course that I pursued. And what will be the end of that? It will be vanity. And so concerned about what Solomon's son might do, he certainly cannot commend pleasure to his son or pursuing the hedonistic life that he he describes in verses 1 to 11. So instead, Solomon says, what about wisdom? I can commend wisdom to my son so that the one who comes after me will not repeat everything that I have done and fail in the same way. He turns again to wisdom, hoping that in wisdom there is something good that his son might take from it and that he can commend wisdom. And Solomon does find something commendable in wisdom. Look what he says in verse 13. I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. And I want you to notice in verse 13 when Solomon says, I saw, that is something that he repeats over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Solomon is a man who's just observing life as it is under the sun. And so he says throughout this book, I saw this and I saw that and I saw that. Solomon is looking at the world through the eyes of his flesh and not the eyes of faith, which is why he is so depressed, because he is just observing what life is like under the sun. I saw that wisdom excels folly, that is, it is better than or more profitable than uh, folly. Wisdom is more profitable than folly, just as light is more profitable or better than darkness. Now, that's a positive statement to make about wisdom, is it not? It is a positive statement. Now, it is very minimalistic. You would think um, you would think that Solomon, the wisest man on earth, would have given us a much more robust and exuberant commendation of wisdom than he does here. It excels folly. Like light is better than darkness. Wisdom is better than folly. Really, Solomon, that's all you can say about wisdom is better than being a fool? That's it? Imagine that you were to have me over and you feed me a bowl of soup and you say, well, what do you think? And I say, well, it's better than raw sewage. Does that sound like a compliment? You would hope for something a little bit more enthusiastic and commendable, right? The Solomon says wisdom is better than folly. Well, that's patently obvious. You would hope that he would say wisdom is better than folly, but we'd expect him to say something a little bit more about wisdom. Like what he says, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 4, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that is wisdom, and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and a man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. That is wisdom. Proverbs 16, verse 16. How much better is it to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver? Now that's what you would want to read about wisdom. Wisdom is better than foolishness. It's kind of a very minimalistic commendation of wisdom. 
And Solomon was not entirely soured on the subject of wisdom. Because even in Ecclesiastes, he says some good and positive things about wisdom. Because throughout the book, he returns to the subject of wisdom again, appealing to wisdom to find some answers and some assessment of the things that he is observing. So he says in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. Now, if we're looking for advantage, here's where Solomon says, now this is an advantage. Wisdom along with an inheritance. It's good. And it's an advantage to the man who lives under the sun. Verse 12, for wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is the wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 16. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. So this is a positive note regarding wisdom. He says it's better than folly. And then he gives an analogy in verse 14. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. You might be thinking, by the way, that is a Hebrewism, a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew figure of speech to have your eyes in your head. It just means that your eyes are functioning properly and that you're able to see because they're in the right place. As one creative writer said it, his eyes are in his sockets rather than his pockets, meaning that he can see and his eyes are where they should be and he's functioning, right? I always say to my kids, be where you're at, right? Be aware of where you're at and, and make your mind function the way that it should be. Your eyes are in your sockets rather than your pockets. So his eyes are in his head, meaning that they're functioning and he can see well, that is the, the advantage or benefit that wisdom gives, that we are able to see, but the foolish man walks in darkness. Now, you'll notice that wisdom is compared with light and folly is compared with darkness. And since we just got out of the Gospel of John, I should say this. We are used to thinking when we hear terms like light and darkness, because we went through John, we're used to thinking of light and darkness in their moral and ethical and spiritual terms. Right? Like a men love darkness rather than light. We're not talking about men like to walk into dark rooms and they don't like to have the lights on. That's not what we mean. But what we're describing when we say men love darkness rather than light, the moral or ethical or spiritual side of darkness, that, that spiritual realm that darkness sort of portrays. Solomon is not using light and darkness in the way that John does in a theological, moral, or ethical sense. He's just using a, a real-world common example that we would be familiar with. Look, living in the light is better than living in darkness. Can you imagine, men, how difficult it would be to rebuild an engine in complete darkness? Women, can you imagine how difficult it would be to cook an entire meal, a complicated meal, in complete darkness, or to sew a really nice wedding dress in utter and complete darkness? There is the advantage of doing things when the light is on. That's Solomon's point. There is an advantage to having wisdom. It allows us to walk through life and avoid the pitfalls, to not stub our toe, to not make mistakes. It helps us to see the dangers that might be present. That's the advantage that wisdom offers. But it is an advantage that is limited to this life and to this life alone. So just as a man, just as it is good for a man to walk in the light and to live in the light with the lights on, so it is good to have wisdom as your companion and to live a life of wisdom. That is what he is saying. Now, that's the advantage or the benefit of wisdom in this life. But, but, and here is the but, and here is where Solomon takes away with one hand what he has given to us with the other. But wisdom has its vanities as well as its values. Look at the end of verse 14. And I know that one fate befalls them both. And then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? One fate befalls them both. So he commends wisdom and its benefit in this life. But then, again, here's where Solomon looks up and he sees the cloud of death. But one fate befalls both the wise man as well as the fool. And by fate, Solomon doesn't mean fate in the philosophical sense that we would use fate today like some foreboding, evil, uh, omnipotent power in the universe that has uh, predestined certain events to happen. Uh, not that type of, of, of stoic, nihilistic 
type of fate. But by fate, the word simply means those events that happen to us that happen to everybody, and it makes no distinguishing between between them. Events that are outside of our control that happen to the lot of humanity. That's what he is describing. So, so, uh, wisdom's deficiency in this life is seen in three categories or three things that Solomon observes in this text. And I want you to notice them. First, wisdom offers no protection against the tragedies of life. Wisdom offers no protection against the tragedies of life. One fate befalls both the wise man and the fool. This last week, you heard about Hurricane Matthew, which hit the eastern seaboard in Florida and went through some islands before that, killed hundreds of people, almost a thousand people. Uh, it left that in its wake, a Hurricane 4, uh, uh, Category 4 hurricane. The only way you didn't hear about that is if you were living in a, living in a cave in Kandahar because it's on the news everywhere, right? Do you think that that hurricane made any distinction at all between the wise man and the fool? Nope. That hurricane passed over wise men and fool, fools. And both lost their property, both lost homes, both lost loved ones, both had their lives disturbed. Wisdom offered no benefit at all to those people who were in the path of that hurricane. Because the one fate, that hurricane, fell upon both of them. Both wise men and fools fall down the stairs and break a leg or break a hip. Both wise men and fools need back surgery. Both wise men and fools go blind. Wisdom offers no protection at all against the tragedies of life that befall everybody and make no discrimination between the wise and the fool. See, that's this is where Solomon is brutally honest and painfully so about what it is like to live life in this fallen world. And so when you look at the one thing that happens to both the wise men and the fool, you ask in verse 15, then what advantage do I have? Wisdom offers... Wisdom offers no protection against the tragedies of life. Second, wisdom offers no protection against death itself. Look at the end of verse 16. This is the one fate that haunts Solomon. The end of verse 16, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. Both wise men and fools died in the path of that hurricane. Both wise men and fools burned up in house fires. Both wise people and fools are killed at drive-by shootings. They have heart attacks. They get cancer. They die from a stroke. They die suddenly. They fall off of buildings. This happens to both the wise men and the fool, and all alike die. Here's a little thought experiment for you. Imagine that you walk into a funeral home, and you're standing at the foot of two caskets. And in these two separate caskets are two different men. They're both about the same age. They look very similar to each other They're uh, because of the, the same age. Um, they're both the same gender, the same sex, the same nationality. They're both dressed in, in nice suits, and they're both lying there dead. You know nothing about their family, nothing about their name. You've never heard the names before. You know nothing about either one of these men. You've never seen either one of them before in your life. But you know this one thing and one thing only. One of these men was a wise man and one of them was a fool. You tell me which one was which. Solomon standing at the foot of those caskets, looking at two men. One fate befalls both the wise man and the fool. It offers me no advantage over death. Because death is going to come in and erase all my advantage, erase all of my profit, take everything away from me, and I'm just going to be the next John Doe lying next to the other John Doe in the casket. And so what is the advantage of being a wise man over a fool? Somewhat discouraging, isn't it? Wisdom offers us no advantage from the tra- uh, no, no protection from the tragedies of life and no protection from death itself. And wisdom offers us no guarantee that we will even be remembered. Look at verse 16. For there is no lasting remembrance for the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. So if you're a wise individual, will you be remembered because you put name your name on a building? Or you have a park named after you? 
Will you be remembered if you start a scholarship for somebody or all your acts of charity that you have done, all the good things that you have done, the businesses that you have built, the money you have accumulated, the investments that have, have doubled and tripled over the span of your life? If you're a wise person, is any of that going to be remembered at all? Any of it? Now, you'll be forgotten just like the fool will be forgotten. All of it, all of history and all of time will erase all of us. And so that's why the question in verse 15, why have I been extremely wise? So should we despair and say, well, if there's no advantage to wisdom in protecting me against the tragedies of life or against death or against being forgotten, then what's the purpose? I won't be wise at all. Is that Solomon's conclusion? No, he says, because wisdom has the advantage over folly. In this life, wisdom helps me to walk in a fallen world to the glory of God and the good of other people. So wisdom has a blessing and advantage here on this earth. But you say, wisdom doesn't protect me from the tragedies of life. No, you're right, it doesn't. It wasn't intended to. Wisdom doesn't protect me from death. You're right. Wisdom was not intended to protect you from death or to deliver you from death. Wisdom wasn't intended or designed to keep you in everybody's memory or to make everybody remember you forever. Wisdom was designed for one thing and is given to us as the gift of God for this one thing, that we may walk in a fallen world to the glory of God and to the good of others. That is the benefit and the blessing of wisdom. So we ought to seize that and not despair of it. And, and Solomon despaired of it. And he kind of comes to the wrong conclusion. Why have I been extremely wise? And this is where as Christians with a biblical and New Testament perspective, we have to step out of Solomon's perspective and say, there is a reason that we are extremely wise. There is a reason that we pursue wisdom because it gives us the advantage in this life. And there is an advantage and there is a profit to, to it in this life. So to answer the question in verse, uh, that 1 verse 3 posed, what advantage is there for a man in all of his labor that he does under the sun? There is an advantage to be found in one thing. And what is it? It's wisdom in this life. But for Solomon, death hovered over top of him and threatened to rob him of all of the wisdom that he acquired. And so if all will be forgotten, then why be wise? If you will be forgotten in a hundred years, why be wise? Because there is an advantage to it in this life. You say, but I'll be dead, I'll be buried, and I'll be forgotten. And I will not be remembered forever. You're right, you won't. But a hundred years from now is not forever, is it? This is where the biblical perspective offered in the other Proverbs and wisdom literature comes to help balance out Solomon and show why he came to the wrong conclusion that he did. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7 says, The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Where is the memory of the righteous blessed, but the name of the wicked rots? Is that in this life? That ultimately is not described this life. That ultimately describes the life that is to come. Psalm 112, verse 6, For he that is the righteous will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. Now, that doesn't seem to describe this world in which the righteous are remembered forever, does it? No, but now I've asked you to analyze, the pers analyze life and wisdom from the vantage point of standing at the foot of those two caskets with two men in it. Now I want you to step away from the casket for a second and step onto the new heavens and the new earth. And now I ask you, who will be remembered and who will be forgotten in the new heavens and the new earth? Who will be remembered in an age and in a time and in a life in which our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and our names are carved on the palms of our Savior and we are known to all of the righteous and all of the righteous are known to us and our names last, uh, our, our names live on and everything we have ever done in the name of the Savior, even a cup of cold water is remembered and rewarded. Step onto the new heavens and the new earth and hear the Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a little. I have given you king a kingship over much. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Enter into the glory of this kingdom. That is where our names will be remembered forever. 
Solomon didn't have that perspective. Solomon is stuck in the funeral home looking at the two caskets. What is the advantage of wisdom in this life? The answer to that is the advantage of wisdom is in this life and this life alone when you think that this life is all that there is. But once you realize that there is a life to come, that you don't despair like Solomon despaired. Look at his despair in verse 17. So I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. It's all striving, vanity and striving after wind. I hated life. Solomon doesn't say he hated his life. He just hates life. Why does Solomon hate life? Because it ends in death. That's what he can't escape. Death makes him hate life. Because Solomon was never delivered from the fear of death as you and I have been. Solomon doesn't have the perspective of, of an eternity and another life in which, uh, in which we are to, uh, to live and thus we are to love life. We love life not because it doesn't end in death for us, but because death for us ushers us into the next life. So our perspective is more like David's in Psalm 34. In Psalm 34, David said this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the wise man who desires or loves life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Speak peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his eyes are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And I would add to that forever. The memory of the wicked will rot, but not for the righteous. So listen, it is true that everything that we do and establish in this life is erased in this life, but established in the next. Every effort that we make and every work that we do is forgotten in this life, but it is remembered in the next. Every bit of wisdom that we acquire in this life and living to the glory of God and the good of others in this life, it is rewarded in the next. And for the wicked, it is the exact opposite. Everything they establish and do in this life that is remembered, if any of it is remembered, is erased and rots away in the next. But for the righteous, our names are remembered forever. And therefore, we come to Solomon's conclusion in chapter 12, which is fear God and keep His commandments, because this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. We live before the face of God, under the eyes of God, beholding the glory of God, looking forward to the life that is to come, understanding that though we may be forgotten and we may die and everything in this life is erased and is no more, God will redeem it, reclaim it, and resurrect it in the life that is to come. And in that age, nothing will be forgotten except the wicked. But we certainly will not be. Let us pray together. Our gracious God, we thank You for the mercy and blessing of salvation in Jesus Christ. It is because You have delivered us from this vain and futile world that we are able to rejoice and to sing Your praises. We thank You that You have given to us a life ahead, an eternal life to look forward to and to anticipate and to enjoy with You and the saints forever and ever. We're so grateful that You have delivered us from this fear of death, that Satan no longer holds the power over our lives, over our thoughts, and over our hearts as he once did. We thank You that You have delivered us from the deception of our hearts and that You have opened our eyes to the truth. All of this is Your gift of good, good grace to Your people, and we rejoice in it and we thank You for it. Help us to live in this world in a way that is honoring to You, that glorifies Your name and is for the good of Your people. We pray that you would give to us wisdom. That is your good gift to your people. So help us to receive that and to pursue wisdom that we may acquire it. The wisdom that begins with the fear of God. May we live in that healthy, admiring fear of you, our great God and Savior. That we may desire to do things for your glory and to live 
in holy lives that are, are reflective of the grace that you have given to us in our great salvation. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.